If you ask Roxanne Gay how she likes to be introduced, she'll say something like this. My favorite description of what I do is when people name me as a writer first, because I am a writer first. And you'd think that would be the obvious description. Award-winning author, an editor, a publisher, TV writer, an opinions contributor for The New York Times. But that's not what happens. They'll be like, she has a Ph.D., in Twitter, and I'm like, no, I have a PhD in rhetoric and technical communication. Now, I wouldn't say she has a PhD in Twitter. I would say she's come from a generation of what they call very online. She didn't come up through the ranks of columnists at regional newspapers or at a national magazine. She gained international fame because she had a distinctive voice that stood far from the Madden crowd. This week, Roxane Gay is out with a new book called Opinions. It's a collection of her essays from the last decade, but it also has her reflections on how her opinions have changed and what it's like to become famous for sharing them and how social media changed the way we all think about criticism and professional opinion. I'm Audie Cornish, and this is The Assignment. When Roxanne Gay first shared her opinions on the internet, she was like the rest of us, just sharing. There was no plan at all. When I first came on social media, it's because I was living in the middle of nowhere and I was kind of bored and I was like, oh, I can talk to other people. And it was like, it reminded me of chat rooms way back in the day that sort of came to prominence and then disappeared. So I wrote an essay called The Careless Language of Sexual Violence after reading a New York Times story about a young girl who was gang raped in a town called Cleveland, Texas. And the Times reported the story that the town was reeling. And I was incensed because I just thought, I think the 10-year-old, 11-year-old girl at the center of this story is probably reeling a bit more than the town. Excuse my language. A bit more than the town. But the way you just said it is the way that in the past, we would say to each other in whatever our communal gathering spaces would be, whether that is a hair salon, a church pew gathering spot, like seeing someone in town at the post office, gossiping at work. And you were in this interesting position where there was something about the way you express those ideas, your academic credentials, mm-hmm. and this platform that kind of exploded in that moment. Absolutely. And I think for me, for someone who has often lived in, if not remote places, isolated places or culturally isolated places as a Black woman in predominantly white environments, the internet was my beauty salon. It was my community church pew. It was, you know, where I found the most community consistently. And so everything came together with that essay and then being able to talk about it online and then see the response to the New York Times article and then they re-reported it and we could talk about that. And it just sort of started to grow from there. And And it's intoxicating. It, It is intoxicating. I think that not enough people admit that when you finally realize that people are hearing you and that they respect what you have to say and that's not a way you've ever imagined yourself... It's very intoxicating. It's also very overwhelming. And it scared me sometimes. And I would just like put my phone away, like tuck it under my pillow, like make the bad man go away and let me read a book. But 
But are you running from the attention or are you running from the feeling you have with the attention? Uh, running from the feeling I have with the attention because I didn't want to get used to it because I've been a loner for most of my life and awkward and shy. And even though that narrative is no longer true, it's hard to disabuse yourself of certain ways of seeing yourself. It was really more the feeling of it and just thinking, I don't want to get used to like this feeling of feeling respected and feeling um, like people care about what I have to say because it's going to go away. So let me not become accustomed to it so that I have to then deal with like the loss of it. Another thing that being very online can do for people is um, can help you engage in a kind of justice seeking. What did it look like? Because I think people often sought your opinion <laughs> to confirm or assess um, or in a way almost prosecute, right, ideas that they felt needed to be addressed. Whenever I'm having these conversations, I say it over and over again, but I'm like, we need a sense of scale and proportion. Like, let's not suggest. Give me an example. Um so, for example, people will condemn uh, a Louis C.K. with the same vigor as an Al Franken. And they're not the same thing. We tend to paint every misdeed with the same broad brush of that's unacceptable and they should be removed from society. And, and I've written about this and I, one of the essays is in the book. Like, we don't seem to have any space for having conversations about redemption at the same time, people who fall from grace seem to want redemption immediately. And they think, oh, the minute I've fallen, I can start to make my way back. There's no reflection. There's no timeout. And so if we don't allow paths for redemption, are we really saying that the minute you make a horrible mistake, that's it? And on the other hand, when you make a horrible mistake, are you really going to say that you've done enough when you've done nothing? And I are there moments that you've commented or offered opinions in that vein, meaning you've been part of that crowd? You know what? No, I mean, I don't think so. I think people think I have and I think people shove me in there. But I also think that they're reading selectively and they ignore half of what I say because I'm pretty consistent on this where, yes, we can express outrage about outrageous things. And certainly there are some people like Trump. <laughs> Go ahead put him on an island far away from everything forever. It's fine. But I'm fairly consistent in that I'm also talking about, okay, what's next? Where do we go from here? And how do we approach these things in ways that are proportionate to what's actually happening? And Is this a very popular opinion right now? The one you're espousing? No, I don't think it's a popular opinion right now because I think, and I think there's a lot of things going on right now. I think people are still traumatized from Trump and from the pandemic. And so this is the one space where we can feel like we're making a difference, where we can see justice, where we can, you know, I think it's kind of becoming like a stoning or public hanging. Like, I think it feels good for people to express their frustrations on something that we can all agree this is bad. And if it's bad, we can punish it. And we don't have to think any further than that. I think people just want that release and that satisfaction. And nobody really wants to think about nuance. And you see it a lot in these sort of bizarre online conversations about things that are like bad, 
But they're not crimes. Bad but not crimes is a category we really struggle with, I think, People culturally. People are completely una- unable to do it. But we know this can happen, right? Any one of us at any given time can go viral for oh, yeah. some ugly behavior. Um, is it different with famous people, right? Like you've written about people like Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that you approach those critiques differently? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I would, if if a lesser known comic was saying the kinds of transphobic, homophobic, and sometimes misogynistic things that Chappelle was saying, I would write about it. But with Chappelle... He'll be fine. He is fine. He doesn't care. Uh, He just doesn't. But the argument you're making, the one you made earlier about people moving too fast to to criticize, Mm -hmm. et cetera, it feels very adjacent to the anti-cancel culture conversation. It feels very adjacent to that world of people who are constantly obsessed with the threat of being, quote unquote, canceled. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're very similar. But the thing is, again, like people just are so half-assed about this. Cancel culture, I can, you know, and I write about this a lot, but I consider it more consequence culture. And I also just don't think that you're canceled when you're critiqued. Critique is not cancellation. Critique is critique. And you can do with it what you will. But have you been canceled because I wrote one essay? No, you just haven't. That's not how it works. And I wish that people would acknowledge that. Or they see it as punishment, that. that there is a kind of... Um, that the social punishments that come with committing offense are sometimes, as you said, out of proportion with the offense. Yeah, but like, okay, if we're using the example of Dave Chappelle, I, I think that the social pushback he gets is exactly in proportion with what he's done. And, and, I, and it's not even about offense. It's not about being offended. It's about the very real consequences of transphobia in a time when trans people are being more and more marginalized. And it's just like, wow, was it really worth it to get off that joke? But the thing is, is he entitled to making those jokes? 1000%. Is he entitled to believe whatever he wants to believe? Yes. But is he doing that in a vacuum? No. And when you don't do things in a vacuum, people are going to feel some kind of way for better or worse. And he, he's also entitled to not like the pushback. And that's okay. Like, it's all okay in that there's room but for But I hear you all. making a distinction depending on the size of the person's platform. It sounds like you want to extend a little more grace to the people who find themselves in the spotlight than the people who already live there. Yes. Yes and no. But yes, I mean, I think that with a Dave Chappelle, he has an extraordinary reach. And, you know, Bob Evans over there can say damaging things and it's a problem and it's worth critiquing. But does he have the same reach? And we should just say you just made up Bob Evans because, like, honestly, that you said it so convincingly that I thought it was a real person. <laughs> no, no, there's no Bob Evans. That's just like John Doe. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's easier to extend grace to someone with less power. And mm. it doesn't mean they're beyond critique. Lord knows. But I do think that, again, the scale of critique is is different. Am I going to write about Bob Evans in the paper of record? No, I am not. Most of the time. 
unless he, you know, murders an unarmed black man, in which case, Bob, hello. After the break, what happens when the critics and the internet trolls turn on Roxanne? When I don't publish a piece for whatever reason, and I know it's because I'm I'm not up for dealing with the feedback I'm going to get, not criticism, but like the the harassment. It just, it makes me sad and that this should not be the price of doing your job. We'll be right back. So that's being on on one side of that dialogue. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is being on the receiving end of hate and invective and critique, yeah. but also criticism, mm-hmm. let's just say, and aggression. Mm-hmm. What did that look like when you were starting out versus what did it start to look like as you are becoming more of a public figure? I think the aggression is actually the same. It's the amount. So back in the day, it might be two or three guys. And now it's two or 300 or more. And, you know, back then, nobody knew who I was. They didn't know anything about me. There were no pictures of of me out on the internet. So there was little for them to go on. So they would just like make up insults. But now the insults are very, very targeted and very specific. And that can be really painful. So much much detail of your life is out there. Correct. And it's not even the stuff I've put into my books, but... You know, they Google pictures and there are entire forums where people, uh, men mostly, I would guess, um, like insult me and talk about like the most grotesque things. And I don't go looking for it at all. But Google Alerts brings the most aggravating stuff into your inbox, as I'm sure you've experienced. It's really frustrating. I turned them off like two or three years ago. I need to turn them off because it's too much. Because suddenly I realized, mm-hmm. at first I thought I was doing it protectively, right? I was like, I want to know just in case there's something I need to refute. And then a quick, I was like, wait a second, I'm actually mm-hmm. spoon feeding myself yeah. um, shots of toxicity. And I just thought I was looking at Google Alerts to see like, you know, when I publish something, when it's up. And, and, and that is how it started. I never, ever was looking for hate online. I do not have the kind of ego that can tolerate that. So I do not search myself. I do not ego Google at all. Mm-mm, nope. Because it's never going to work out for me. But it's this, just the amount of aggression has gotten worse and worse and worse. And the thing is, I have no problem with critique. I might feel some kind of way after reading a bad review. And I'll talk about it with my friends, cry about it with my wife, whatever. But it's all fair game. It may not be fair, but like that's part of it. That's part of putting your work into the world. But the aggression online, it's never I hate your ideas. It's you're ugly. Okay. And like, <laughs> what's next? Like, really? That's the best you've got? You're fat. Um, I know. Thank you. And then there are the death threats and the rape threats. And it's just like, wow, wow. Just because you disagree with me, that's a lot. What's going on in your life, friend? Because something is wrong. I mean, you're, you're laughing, but I, I know when I very first went on television, 
of course, immediately there was a torrent of um, little social media notes from people dissecting how I looked, good mm-hmm. and bad. And I had prepared so much, like my little notes, you know, to talk about the politics of the day and was really nervous. And and then, yeah, someone just says, you're gross. And it does deflate you. It does. It, for me, it deflated me. I don't want to put that oh, on no, no, you. Oh, no, no, no. It deflates me. I felt every slap. I felt every adjective. Yeah, I do as little TV as possible. I turn down 90% of all TV requests because... I have to be in a really good place. I have to really be like, I deserve to be alive before I can go on TV because the blowback is so intense. And however many people you think are reading you and you're like cute little newspaper, TV reaches millions and millions of people. And some of them have time. But you did become known as a person who claps back <laughs> oh yeah. And no, if you come does, at me, I will right? clap like back. Like you you would respond to things Absolutely. big and small. Yeah. And was that a mistake? No. Absolutely not. Are you sure? 100% sure. Because you know, How is that a good use of your time? It doesn't have to be. Not everything I do is a good use of my time. Um <laughs> it's not a good use of my time at all. It's immature. Um but you know, not to get all psychological, but I was picked on a lot as a kid and I never had the comebacks. I never had the ability to stand up for myself, but in a, in a a writing medium, Oh, and you're going to talk shit to me. I am going to eviscerate you. I'm going to remove your internal organs. I am. And you know, is it my best quality? No, not, not at all. It's petty. It's immature. And you know, my wife is always, the reason I've sort of toned it down is because my wife is like, it's beneath you. And I'm like, is it? <laughs> you think it is? It's not. But I don't regret it. I'm sorry, but trolls, if you have the wherewithal to come at me with nonsense, I'm going to give it back to you. And we can do this all day. I've got the time. This is the side of you that I find surprising, not because everyone needs to be all good all the time. But, you know, you're saying this to me, even as you wrote in the book, that dealing with all that made you brittle. It did. Right. And did it did harden you Mm -hmm. in ways that you didn't like. It did. And is that something that came out in real life or is that something that was reflected to you? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like who held up that mirror to you? That was like, hey, I don't know if this is good for you. Fortunately, it did not bleed into my real life. And because I think because I'm just so quiet in my real life. Um, but it did bleed in line online. And I found myself being snippy with people who were approaching me innocuously, even if it sort of irked me. But it was innocuous. And it's like, wait, why am I coming at this person at a 10 when a three is all that's called for? And so that's what gave me pause, Um, just putting up the mirror to myself and just saying, like, why are we approaching this person with such intensity? They don't know that you were just talking to five trolls. They're just asking you a question. In opinions you write, sometimes I write something and choose not to publish it simply because I don't want to deal with the bullshit and that you hate when that happens, Mm -hmm. where you hold back intellectual work. Uh, you say, because I'm unwilling to pay the price I know will be exacted. Mm-hmm. And that was wild to me mm-hmm. that there's like, 
the equivalent of a musician's vault, mm-hmm. you know, that there are opinions that you were like, even I don't want to deal with this. Yes. You know, when I don't publish a piece for whatever reason, and I know it's because I'm I'm not up for dealing with the feedback I'm going to get, not criticism, but like the the harassment. It just, it makes me sad in that this should not be the price of doing your job. You shouldn't have to silence yourself because you know that the level of harassment you're going to receive is untenable. And that's frustrating. And there's nothing to stop it. There's no guardrails that we can put on it. We cannot control people. And nor would I really want to, but I do wish that we could have better discourse. How have you come to see the value of opinion in an age where everyone has one and everyone has a way of sharing it all at the same time? You know, we are drowning in opinions, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that it's interesting that we have so many avenues and that so many people are clearly so hungry to share their opinions. That's interesting to me. And I think it's because we feel unheard or unseen or unacknowledged in our day-to-day lives. We're roughly the same age. Yeah. And I think we grew up in an age where, yeah, they, they did call one person. Mm-hmm. It was like, what does Al Sharpton think <laughs> right, about any given thing? Mm-hmm. And to, I think, to come up in an age, ironically, I think, post-Obama, mm-hmm. where there was a flourishing of, of writing from Black and Latino and I think we're also seeing it with Asian community, mm-hmm. like this kind of political awakening and the dialogue that comes with that. It's been amazing to watch. Mm-hmm. Have you enjoyed experiencing it and sort of seeing the arc of where you started and where you are? You know, I feel like I've been pulled kicking and screaming into opinion. Mm-hmm. Because A, as a journalist, you you know, they're very much, I came up in the age of, your opinion is not important here. Mm-hmm. Leave that to the opinion writers. If you want to do that, you need to literally get up and sit in another part of the room. That's how specific it was. And now that I have to do it, I still hate it, but I've had so many people come up to me and say, oh my gosh, I, I was so glad to see you mm-hmm. there. And what am I supposed to tell them? Like, yeah, I was the only black person on that panel that day. Mm-hmm. Um, (laughs) or they're so happy to see me talking about something that's not an official black thing, right? Like I'm there on the panel for whatever, some other piece of politics. Um, but my point is I, I still hate giving my opinion deeply because I am still always saying there's someone out there who should be doing this. That's not me. It feels, I still feel like an imposter in that way. Um, and I don't, I don't know how to get over that. Maybe I will. I'm getting old now, so. Yeah, you know, I don't know how to get over that either. But lately, and this reinforces something I heard at a speech late recently. Why not me? Why not you? You know, like, why not? Like, we always come up with so many reasons why we shouldn't or can't do something. And why not? I You know, I think sometimes it can be just as simple as that. And... I try to believe that as often as I can when I'm racked with self-doubt, which, of course, like most writers, I have my moments. How do you want people to approach opinions now? How, how do you use them as a tool to make sense of the world rather than 
endure them Mm -hmm. as more noise. Well, you know, the thing is, when I'm writing about my opinions, I'm not telling you what to think. I'm giving you one perspective that is among many. And so it's hopefully to help you start to think for yourself what you might believe about a given issue and how you might feel about a given issue. It's it's an avenue. It's not a dead end. This is not definitive. It's not the end of a conversation. It's a contribution to an ongoing conversation. And I hope people enjoy the book or not in that spirit. Because you, you're not going away, actually. No, I'm <laughs> not. Because you're going to keep giving opinions. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Not going anywhere yet. Writer Roxanne Gay. Her latest book, Opinions, is out now. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Isoke Samuel. Our production staff include Dan Bloom, Lori Galaretta, Carla Javier, and Jennifer Lai. Matt Martinez is the senior producer of our show, mixing in sound design by Michael Hammond. Dan DeZula is our technical director. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. As always, special thanks to Katie Hinman and special thanks to you for listening. I'm Audie Cornish.